0: Thanks, Anna. Good morning, everybody. We are working through uh, the book of Romans, um, one of the larger books in the New Testament, and we are working from it backwards. So we are, we covered chapter 16 first, we covered the last half of chapter 15 last week, and now we are at all of chapter 14 and the first part of 15, and the reason why we're working from it backwards is because the end of the book really sets sets the the occasion and the context for the book of Romans that all of the deep theology in chapters 1 through 11 are speaking to. Um, But oftentimes we, we, we miss the occasion, and essentially what's happening in the Roman Church or the the saints spread throughout the city of Rome, is that there was there was division based upon um, and you could see matters of eating and drinking that were connected to some of the the political currents uh religious currents uh, racial or 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 ethnic currents, and so these issues of of what to eat. Or what not to eat or what to drink or what not to drink was causing a lot of division and so we're looking at um at some of these contexts we're looking at this context that was that had a lot of division present so that we can understand what we're looking at when we start addressing the the heavy theology of the first uh, 11 chapters so this is uh this is this is Not an easy series to go through for the sheer fact that it's the book of Romans that we're trying to cover in uh, fewer chapters than, fewer sessions than there are even chapters. So 15 weeks, I think we're looking at, or 12 or 13. Um, But it's difficult for us to connect exactly to the same kind of context. But I do think that there are similar types of things that if if we think through them a little bit, the same dynamics can occur; they can occur in our churches. So, if we if we think about um, matters of opinion in our day, okay, and it's important that we look at these issues as matters of opinion. Now, for Paul to have categorized what they ate and drank as a matter of opinion would have been a very bold thing for him to say. But in chapter 14, uh, he starts out. He calls these things matters of opinion or, or matters that are disputable, disputable matters. Those are the various ways that English translations have. Now, these are evidently really important things to the Jews and to the Gentiles because they are judging and disdaining each other for them. And Paul's like, hey, these are disputable matters. These are matters of opinion. He can say that because of the weight of theological truth that he has dumped on them to that point. He has explained to them what it means to be righteous. And we've talked about this idea of righteousness. Righteousness uh, is this sense of being whole or complete or good. All in my life is, is good. If we, have, if we think of ourselves as righteous. We think of ourselves as, as as everything is kind of working out. My life is good, my relationships with others good, I treat others well and others treat me well with respect. There's just this comprehensive goodness about it. And see, this definition of what righteousness is, is what Paul has had to work so lengthy at. And so what we're trying to do is kind of, we're starting with the back and saying, hey, here's what we're called to from an obligation and obedience standpoint, because Paul says that his purpose is to bring obedience to the Gentiles, obedience to God from the Gentiles, from the nations of the world. So here's what it means to be obedient. Set these matters of opinion aside and pursue peace and love and joy and true righteousness. Welcome one another. You see that repeated throughout these two chapters. Welcome one another. Literally, it's, it's, it's be hospitable. Be able to set aside your opinions for the greater purpose of unity and peace together. Now, none of us are debating whether to eat meat or drink wine. That was at one point sacrificed to idols, right? I'm, I'm guessing that that's not a big issue for most of us in here. Now, but if you start thinking about, okay, where, do we be, where does our culture and where are we tempted to assign morality Okay, within the various things that you could have a lot of various opinions on. Things as normal and day-to-day as what we eat and what we drink. So we do live in a culture that has assigned, is an increasingly assigning uh, morality and a sense of righteousness to food we eat, where it comes from, and how it is produced. Politics and social causes. What is your stance on immigration? Well, if you have a particular stance, there are some within our culture that would classify you as a racist. And that's not necessarily the case, which you can see if you are reading the New York Times and around all of these things. There are uh, liberals that are increasingly saying, listen, you have, to, you have to have some policies on immigration. You just can't have open borders. And to say that is not being a racist. Anyway, this is a challenging sermon today, Um, and this whole series is going to be challenging because we're going to be dealing with matters of opinion that it's very easy for all of us, and myself included, to start attaching and evaluate, start attaching morality to these things and evaluating ourselves and evaluating others on the basis of what our opinions are. We have... Moral judgments against whole industries, pharmaceutical companies, oil companies, and corporate farming. Do you remember the question, what would Jesus drive? What is the difference between an opinion and what God considers righteousness? And how strongly do we hold our matters of opinion? Now, one of the things that Paul is going to address is that it's okay for us to have matters of opinion. But how does it lead us to deal with and interact with people? How did these affect unity and mission? Because these matters of opinion were affecting the unity of the Roman church, and in affecting the unity of the Roman church... Paul saw that, hey, this is going to affect my mission to Spain. If I show up in Rome and these people aren't even talking together because of what they eat or drink or not eat or not drink, how are they going to be able to come together, Jew and Gentile, to support my mission to Jew and Gentiles to Spain? That's the last thing they're going to want to do. They can't even get together on what the mission is. Which is why Paul spends three chapters in 9 through 11 to describe, hey, you guys, listen, here's, what, here's how the Jews and Gentiles now fit into what God is doing and has been doing historically on a cosmic and global nature and an eternal nature and, and that so much of it is unfathomable to us. So what is going on? What is going on? Well, actually, look, I have a final question. What is the test? Can we hold our opinions... And preferences without affecting how we welcome others, without affecting how we think about and act and treat and sacrifice for others. So here's the problem in the Roman church. You have the Gentiles that are hosting a house church meeting. And at the house church meeting are wine and meat that potentially could have been used in sacrificial services to pagan gods, all right? So just like you read in the Old Testament, not all the meat that was used for ceremonial pagan ritual, or even in Israel's case, not all of the meat that was used for sacrifice was burned up. There would be some meat left over, okay? In Roman times, meat that was left over or wine that was left over was sold in the market as less expensive food and wine than the brand-new butchered stuff. So if you are poor or are a slave, like we know many of the Roman people were in the, in the, in the churches, um, for frugality reasons, they're not going to be spending the most money. They're going to be spending less money and buying meat and wine that was possibly used. Okay? But the Gentiles who have discovered Christ are fine with that because they know, as Paul says, that everything has been created by God. The Jews, however, who are still being informed by the Jewish tradition and the moral laws and the the dietary laws found in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law, even though they've come to know Christ, are still in their conscience prohibited from eating food that has been sacrificed to idols or drinking wine that has been sacrificed to idols. They could eat meat or they could drink wine. The issue is they couldn't do it if it had been sacrificed to idols. So what was happening is that they couldn't come together in their Lord's suppers. So the Jews would abstain from getting together with the Gentiles in moral judgment of the Gentiles because they believed that the Gentiles were being immoral. And then the Gentiles would look down on the Jews because they couldn't get themselves to think better and to see themselves as free, all right, and that they could eat anything or drink anything. And so they would look down upon. That's why Paul says, who are you to judge? And why are you looking down? And so that's what was going on, Lord's Supper meetings, what they were serving at Lord's Supper meetings. Now, again, I haven't, I haven't um, observed any of these kinds of dynamics in our Lord's Supper meetings because of what people are serving, okay? Okay. Uh, and I think that there's, it seems like, at least from the house church experiences that I've been a part of and have, and have seen, uh, there's a lot of accommodation for the various preferences and needs from a dietary standpoint. But what Paul was looking at was a complete breakdown in unity, and instead of the church showing light in the midst of a dark world, they looked like the rest of the world, because there's all this racial tension going on in the city of Rome, the the Romans um, had uh, kicked out all of the Jews earlier, and, and now they've come back. But there's all this, this racial and ethnic tension in the, in, the, in the city of Rome, and the church looks like Rome. The church looks like Rome. They're not on mission in their world, in the Roman city, and it's going to affect Paul's ability to get them to the point of supporting him. So there's two things that are being affected. Their obedient witness in Rome and their ability to participate in the mission beyond Rome. So what does Paul say? What does Paul say? He says, first of all, avoid passing judgment. Don't judge. (laughs) Change your behavior. Now, he can say that at this point, because he has spent many chapters explaining the gospel up to this point, but he expects that they have understood the gospel to the point where to sit in judgment of another person is not right to do, because it is God. Alone, who judges? And then he says, "Avoid disdaining." So, quit judging people and thinking of them as moral failures. That's what judgment means. You condemn them to a a place of moral unrighteousness that kind of is unredeemable. You've committed an offense that that can't be redeemed. That's what it means to judge. And then there's the disdaining, which means you kind of you're putting yourself above and just looking down and thinking worse of a person because they don't share your same preferences or don't have the same freedoms they're not as intellectually capable or or morally uh understanding or, or whatever there's a there's a moral condemning and then there's an arrogant disdaining those are the dynamics present so paul there's a number of principles that paul lays out the first one is that um no one has the right to stand in judgment over another Because there is no one who has the right to stand in judgment over the servant of another master. That master being Jesus Christ. Who are you to judge another Christian? Jesus Christ is able to make that other Christian stand because he has died for them. He has washed their sins away. And again, we're going to, when we get into the texts on the gospel, I hope we get in. I hope it, we enter. In, we're going to, you guys, we, the, the challenge with these sermons is that we are leaving a lot of <laughs> issues and questions unaddressed. We just are. And so I, I hope and am anticipating and designing to some level that we're going to get into these, these chapters in the earlier part of the book and we're going to be ready for it because we're going to be longing for some deeper clarity on what it means to be a righteous person, which frees us. It frees us in a whole lot of ways. Principle number two, it is a sin to cause another brother or sister to violate their conscience, for to violate one's conscience is sin, even if the act is not seen by God as sin. Now, let me kind of explain... What we need to do is identify the various characters that are present in this narrative. There are five, okay? It's not just weak and strong, Jew and Gentile. Not ten, five, excuse me. (laughs) Um, You have two characters that are mature, all right? and You have the first character, where they, you would call them a participant. Okay, so let's, let's make this a little more interesting and maybe connected. Let's say the issue is not food sacrifice to idols, but whether you're going to have a hamburger made out of beef or one made out of vegetables, okay? I was at Burger King this week and saw the Impossible Burger. Anyhow, I didn't eat it, but... Okay, so we recognize that this is a dynamic, and I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was, who's been a vegetarian since uh, 1982, all right, and she sees a lot of moral issues connected with eating meat or not eating meat. Now, she, her husband eats meat, and she doesn't judge him, okay, but she has her own conscience and values that she holds. All right, so let's make that. So we have the person that eats hamburgers made out of beef, all right, but they don't judge others or look down upon others for not eating beef. All right? It's a mature person that knows their preferences and opinions, that's free with them, is at peace with them, doesn't look down on others, that doesn't share the same opinion. Okay? Then you have the, the, the mature person that has opinions and preferences around not eating meat, they eat the vegetable hamburger. But they, too, don't look down upon or judge others that don't share their same opinions and values. That's a mature person. The higher goal for both of those mature people is that they pursue peace. That they pursue peace and love and joy and righteousness in the Spirit. That's what it means to be mature. Mature isn't dependent upon what opinion you hold. Mature is they know what it means to be righteous and they pursue that. They have their opinions. It's fine to have your opinions. Paul says you need to live consistently with your opinions and pursue what is truly righteousness. Now, you have three immature people. So those are the two mature, the bee feeder and the non-bee feeder, that pursue righteousness. Now, the immature people, you have the first immature is you have the bee feeder that looks down upon those who are vegetarians, right? This is where I would slide to. Amanda came home from school, I think after her freshman year or sophomore, I don't remember when it was, and she's like, I'm a vegetarian now. (sighs) Whoa, wait a minute. I grew up in Missouri. My grandfather raised Angus cattle, and uh, now, so I felt the tension, and if you ask my family, I probably had a little bit of judgment or disdaining. I wouldn't have said it's moral. I would have been an arrogant, disdaining kind of thing. All right? So the person that, ho- that eats their meat and eats their beef and looks down upon others is an immature person. They realize it's okay to eat beef. There's nothing in the Scriptures about eating beef. But they look down upon others that don't share their same opinions. That's the first one. The second one is the vegetarian. All right, The same issue. The, the vegetarian that has their opinions, very strong opinions, and judges others for not sharing those same opinions, you are immoral in eating beef. Do you know what that does to the ecology? Do you know what that does to non-sustainability? You know, all, how, you know how much water it takes to make a hamburger? It's like 17 gallons to make a hamburger. They start listing all of these various things. Okay, And there's judgment present in terms of how they interact with people because they are steadfast in their own conscience but it's not just their own conscience it's they it's their mission it's their mission the fifth person and this is what Paul's addressing here in this second principle you have people that are the weak doubters they haven't decided on whether it's okay to eat beef or not they haven't decided if it's a, if it's if it's a, a moral standard uh, that that is is a good thing to do and a needed thing to do and the right thing to do to just eat vegetables they haven't decided and their conscience is not clear and then you have somebody that comes in and says hey look at this look at this nice filet mignon it's medium rare it's got salt and pepper and rosemary and butter and set it right there before you it, doesn't that smell good doesn't that look good because this is what they're doing at lord's supper meetings This is people eating together. And you have this person that, oh, you know, it does look good. It does smell good. And look, everybody else is eating this meat. Uh, It must be okay for me to go ahead and eat that hamburger or the filet mignon or whatever it may be. But the person isn't convinced. The person isn't convinced in their mind that it's okay to participate. And this is an important principle for all of us to get if we violate our conscience whether the issue is <laughs> biblical or non-biblical whether it's a moral righteousness uh, standard determined by christ in the scriptures or not if we are violating our conscience we are sinning against god because it is a possibility in our mind for it to be against god and because we're not sure and we're willing to take the risk it's a sin against god and if you are a person that causes an other to sin against god by betraying their own conscience that is what the scriptures call a stumbling block And in the eyes of God, a stumbling block is far worse than a person that's just normally sinning. I don't know. Because a stumbling block is more interested in a person that follows his or her own opinion than in truly seeking peace in the Lord. And so, see, the first two people, the mature people, are confident in the righteousness that they have in Christ and recognize that their perspectives about whether they eat beef or not has nothing to do with their righteousness. The second person, the second group of people, the immature people, are attaching righteousness to their opinions. The beef eater says it's a righteous thing to eat hamburgers made out of beef. Everybody should eat hamburgers made out of beef. And part of who they think of themselves as a person and what makes them a good person is that they eat hamburgers made out of beef. Which, if you think about it, and obviously it sounds really silly. But do you know what? When we judge others or look down upon others for not having our own opinions, it is silly. And it is divisive. I'll tell you a big struggle that I have and I confess this to my brothers and sisters in, in Mozambique, but you go to Mozambique, they do an excellent job of keeping things tidy and cleaned up in their personal spaces. Like they're out there at four in the morning sweeping up leaves and sticks that are in their yard every morning, okay? It, it's clean. They, they, they dress well. Their places are clean. Sometimes if you're living, if if people are living like in a dirt house, like a dirt floor, and it's mud walls and thatch roof made out of straw, they still really do a great job of trying to get that as clean as possible. But in public spaces, you guys, it's like the the public places are like just trash cans that anybody, you can't find a trash can. They just throw the trash everywhere. Okay, now. We may not like that. <laughs> I may not like that. But I feel these feelings coming up within me about how I think about people, Mozambican people, because of how they deal with their trash. I don't like dirty things. I don't like... It, it just, it's just... Okay? And there, there are millions of other issues like that that when, the minute I step into a foreign country that just start attacking me. And my, I can feel my flesh stirred up. And this temptation to disdain is very powerful within me over the most trite things. And it is a daily battle to, to, to go into contexts with a spirit of welcoming and grace because of these very trivial things. I, I'm just being honest with you. It is a daily battle. It took me about four or five overseas trips to Nigeria to get to the point where I was determined that I was not going to complain about my circumstances. And it, yes, let me tell you what. It was, it was, it was I, I think, in many cases... Some of the efforts that I've been engaged with overseas have done more to strengthen my own walk with the Lord because of its challenge to me about my arrogance, to be quite honest with you. And so that's immature, and it's often immature about silly things, but you also have the condemning. Okay, so this person has righteousness tied up in their beef-eating and the non-beef eater has righteousness tied up in their vegetarianism, and you're like, well, you know, there are there's a long list of possible moral issues in relationship to eating meat. You know what? There are food inequality, non-sustainability, how how corporate farming affects all these things, and and water, and and climate change, and global warming, and how that's in dis- disproportionately affecting those in uh, um, developing countries versus the Western countries who use... You know I, I, you know, I get it. I have read it. I continue to read it. And one of the things that we're going to see in, chap- in chapters 3 and 4 and 5 is just we have to come to a recognition in chapter 8 that there is no possible way for any of us to get away from sin and the corruption that sin has in the world. And there is a reason why the scriptures are very focused in terms of what defines righteousness. And it comes down to <laughs> our righteousness is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he's laid out very clear standards for what that means. And there are a lot of things that we can form opinions about. And Paul's saying, listen, don't, form, don't, don't not form opinions don't not have personal preferences but if you find that if you find that it is affecting how you treat and think about other people we've got a serious problem we've got a serious problem and so that's that second principle it's a sin to cause another brother or sister to violate their conscience Hold your opinions. Be strong in your opinions. Don't push them on others because you may become a stumbling block. Principle number three, our goal is to pursue peace and mutual growth, to welcome each other in love, peace, and unity. You guys, that is our goal. That is our goal. (laughs) To welcome one another regardless of the opinions they hold about all of these various things. And, And I know... Because I know that we are inundated from our culture on a lot of things to have a lot of moral opinions about because we do not have a sense in our world of what true righteousness really is. And our world is clamoring and crawling and scraping for identity, for meaning, for purpose. We as a culture do not provide it. And so the, the, the identity politics and the cultural wars are shaping a lot of these things, and it is so easy for us to acknowledge, yeah, yeah there's are moral issues here. And then to start thinking about other people differently and start creating little boundaries of, of who we are and aren't going to associate with and who we are and aren't going to hold judgments over because of our opinions on these various things. Our culture is pulling us right into that. And the, the, the temptation for pulling others into our own opinions is that we, since we've defined righteousness to be this way, and that we, even though in this seemingly individualistic culture that we live in, we recognize that identity is not just an individual thing, it is also a community thing. And I need people to affirm my sense of identity that's the whole issue with the book of galatians the book of first and second corinthians and the book of romans you have people that are so wrapped up in how they are defining righteousness and insecure about who they are because outside of jesus christ it never gets settled that they have to draw in more people to affirm them giving them a sense of power whether they're on the side of eating the hamburgers made out of beef or whether they're on the side of Hamburgers made out of vegetables. The insecurity is so great that they, there is this evangelical urge to pull people into my preferences and opinions, my definitions of righteousness, and that is immature. It is immature. And obviously the weak doubter has never put any opinions together about What makes him or her righteous? And in that place of insecurity is constantly longing for two things. What's going to make me righteous and who's going to affirm me? So they find themselves pulled by peer pressure into these various camps. I, I really like the people that eat beef hamburgers. Or I really like the people also that eat vegetable hamburgers. I don't know which to choose. You see? I know it's kind of silly, but I, I think it communicates more than food sacrifice to idols, because I know we see these things all the time. Principle four. And this is what I would say has, has is probably the challenge that, 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 that my flesh um, is, is, this is what I'm always dealing with. The strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. If you, are, if you have a clear understanding of what makes you righteous, and you, and you know that it's none of these, 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 these rules and laws that are being put up by the conservative folks. If you're more progressive, okay, these are the terms that we use, progressive and conservative. Or, if you find yourself to be more progressive in your understanding of, of morality from a biblical standpoint... It is then your responsibility to not judge or disdain those who are conservative, but to bear the burden. But to bear the burden. To give up your freedoms for peace, for unity. Can you have fellowship and eat and drink with people in your freedom? So if I know that, hey, it doesn't matter whether uh, I I eat beef or if I eat vegetable hamburgers, can I go into a setting and regardless of what they're serving, think equally and fairly and engage everybody as as, as if it were the opinions that I would hold myself? Can you do that? Let me tell you, it is not easy to do that. It is not easy to do that. If you are a meat eater, okay, go into a home of a, of, a, of a vegetarian, a whole vegetarian family, and sit there and, and just see what you're feeling, or vice versa. If you are a vegetarian, go into the home of a meat-eating family, and just see what you're feeling, okay? And it may not be beef or vegetarian, it may be a number of things, okay? Maybe a whole number of things. How they keep house, where they live, what their jobs are. It, yes, our flesh, <laughs> this is really where we've got to be strong. Our flesh is constantly longing for some way to manifest its own righteousness outside of Jesus Christ. And anything you have personal preferences around, it is gonna latch onto that. All right. It's gonna latch onto that. And we're gonna see in chapter seven why the law is so so easy for the flesh to use and for the sin nature to use. It's gonna latch onto that, and that will be your battleground. we have to hold our opinions loosely because the kingdom of god is not eating this is another principle the kingdom of god is not all of our different preferences the kingdom of god isn't you finally being a place where all of your dreams about the, what the world should be is fulfilled the kingdom of god is peace and unity and righteousness in the spirit and fellowship with other brothers and sisters in christ from a whole wide and very diverse background Why does this make any difference? If we don't get settled on what makes us a good person, then we are going to constantly be battling ourselves internally. We have to become very knowledgeable and secure in what it means to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is why we're going to spend a lot of time on it when we get to those chapters. It is a scholarly book. It is a challenging book. But you know what? This book was not written for the professional theologians. This book wasn't even written for the elders and the deacons. This book was written for the saints in Rome. Uneducated slaves, two-thirds of them is what it is thought. This book is meant for everybody in the church to comprehend and to understand. And we have got to define what God defines for us as having Christ's righteousness. If we don't get settled on it, we're going to be constantly battling ourselves and our insecurity. We're going to constantly be battling others, either compelling them to be like us or fighting them to stay away from us. And if our experience is primarily one of internal and, ex- and external conflict, then we're not going to be people of the gospel. We're not going to be people of the gospel. Which means that we're not going to have the freedom. Okay? Paul doesn't, Jesus does not tell us to do anything outside of the power and the freedom of the gospel. If you cannot go into obeying Jesus Christ for love for him and for love for others because of the overwhelming freedom and joy that Jesus Christ has given you, you're not following Jesus, you're following some sort of law. And it will wear thin and it will wear out and it will make you frustrated. It will make you frustrated. If we really want to truly follow Jesus Christ in this kind of really radical living, where we can go into any context, holding our opinions at bay and loving in, in attitude and in action, in welcoming and showing hospitality. Um, it, that's what he's calling us to. It it, it, it ha- it's going to have to come from an overwhelming grat- gratitude and freedom that that comes from a, a true internalization of the gospel and a true experience of God making us righteous. Here's the first time I understood the gospel. I mean, we you know, Paul says we go from faith to faith, but. F- For several years in my early Christian days, and I happened to be studying the book of Romans. It was the first book I thoroughly studied. I spent a year in the book of Romans. Um, I was wrestling with God's acceptance and delight in me. I just did not ever believe that that was possible outside of me really performing highly. And and that's easy for, for, for me to succumb to. I come from a performance-based family. I'm a performance-based person, and we we all are in a lot of ways. But but I can remember the moment. I was at a, I was, I was at a, a, a retreat, and the speaker uh, was speaking on Romans, Romans chapter six. And the speaker went in depth for a long time on how we are accepted by God through Jesus. And he would point us out, you are accepted, you are accepted, you are accepted. I can tell you what I was wearing. I can tell you the color of the socks I was wearing, the shoes, my watch, everything. And it was just like, <sighs> this burden of shame and guilt and, and the sense that I had been disappointing God all of my life just was gone. 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 and it freed me it freed me and we have to have some experience of the gospel where we feel that and it is a feeling it is called joy <laughs> it is called freedom paul calls it happiness sometimes they translate it's translated blessed but again that's one of those lame terms that we don't have you know we, happiness is what paul says happy Free, joyful, is somebody who understands who they are in Jesus Christ and that righteousness. If our experience is primarily one out of conflict internal and conflict external, we're just not going to be able to follow Jesus Christ. It will destroy us, it will destroy mission here, and it will affect our mission to the world. It will will restrict us from becoming, this is how he concludes, Jesus Christ became. And the word there is like birthed. He, he became something different for the benefit of the weak, which is all of us. He became something different. Are we willing to become something different? It's going to have to be driven by joy and love and peace and freedom and power. Scott McKnight says this on, this on this chapter, and in conclusion to his book on Romans, which is called Reading Romans Backwards, he says, the message is a lived theology of Christoformity. That's his word of becoming Christ-like. Manifested in peace among siblings, all siblings, not just siblings like me. The message shouts to the American church that its classism, its racism, its sexism, and its materialism are like the strong's social status claims and the weak's boundaried behaviors. In all these various issues, he sees both sides taking their sides and at war with each other. They divide and conquer. The message of Romans is that the weak and the strong of our day, and I say now what I have not said, that everyone thinks that they are strong and that the other is weak. They must surrender their claims to privilege, because we're all clamoring for that privilege, and hand them over to becoming Christ-like. Let me pray.